Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. G'day there, Aaron Noonan. Great to have you with me. It is the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco. If you love your motorsport, we are all across it on this podcast. It's the first of our two-parter with Craig Baird. I've been on a tour recently of Queensland recording a whole bunch of podcast chats that you're going to hear in upcoming weeks and months here on the pod. Now, with Beto, there is just so much to talk about. On part one, we talk about his time racing open wheelers, about how he started in his native New Zealand, how David Oxton, who drove with Peter Brock at Bathurst in the mid-80s, really helped him, and about the time that Kenny Smith threatened him as well. I'll let Berto tell you why and how that all came to be. Of course, with Berto, you can't do a chat about his career and not talk about his time in super touring, and specifically crossing the line first to win the 1997 AMP Bathurst 1000. Of course, the history book show he and Paul Morris were removed from the results post-race, for a driving time infringement. Beto opens up about that in this first part of the podcast. It's hard to believe 25 years ago this year was that great Bathurst split of 97 with the two-litre race and the V8 supercar race that followed two weeks later. We also talk on part one about his time in the British Touring Car Championship with the factory Ford Mondeo team and his time as teammates with Nigel Mansell. So here we go, buckle up, time to start part one of Craig Baird on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco. Beardo, how are you bud? Uh, Nice to catch up with you. I'm on a bit of a Queensland pod tour, so it's nice to stop in here on the Gold Coast at Chateau Beardo. I think that's the official title. Thanks for having me. You're more than welcome here, but I notice I'm the last one. No, just of today's <laughs> recording session. I've got a whole week up here. So you, you wanted to end up on the Gold Coast. That's right. I'm, I'm basing myself on the Gold Coast for this trip, and this is only day one of five. So you are on day one of five of my recording okay. mission. So Last of day one. Perfect. You're on day one pole <laughs> position. Stop bitching for crying out loud. There's a whole pile of stuff I want to talk to you about. There's a whole pile of stuff our listeners and our readers want to talk about too. So it's a bit of a hodgepodge. We go a bit all over the shop with this podcast. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. We'll, we'll cover it. It's a bit like me. Yeah, well, a bit like me too. This is why it probably works. Hey, are you retired from racing? Are you, are you still open to having a steer here and there? I know you're busy with the, the supercar driving standard stuff and the 12-hour and all the other stuff you've got in your world, but are you open to a phone call? Have you have you got a helmet lurking around here? Well, if it's a supercar and like Murph, I would – no, not like Murph. I wouldn't say yes. Um, yeah, I'm still open to driving cars. I love sports cars, love GT racing, love endurance racing. Um, downgraded to a silver when I hit 50. So Silver is a nice thing in GT. Silver's land, a great that, thing. That opens up doors. Uh, yeah, well, I, yeah, it, it makes you the AM, mm. the AM component. So um, it's kind of scary because, yeah, I, I miss it. But I, I'm so wrapped up in what I do at a race meeting. To be able to step into a car at a race meeting would take away from what I do. Mm. So, um, yes and no. It's six of one, half a dozen of the other. But yeah. So if 
a nice little thing just popped up out of the blue, a proddy race or a GT race or something, a bit of fun with some mates or you, so you haven't closed the door. I just want to, I I want to put it out there because you never know, this might bring a deal. No, I haven't closed you, so. the door. But when you can say that, the door might even be closed, mm. but I don't know about it. Yeah. So it doesn't yeah. hurt. Yep. The pain of actually thinking I'm going to hang my footy boots up mm. would make me cry. It really would. Um, I've raced since I was four years old and to just get that switch and flick it, I, I don't think I could have done that, but I haven't been in a race car for three or four years. Mm. Um, do I miss it? Yes, I do. Do I love my job with supercars? Yes, I do. So there's just a balance there and something might happen. I may never drive again. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? We'll see. So you've been racing since you were four. What, what was your first race in if you were racing at well, four? Well, my father fudged the books, actually. Oh, here we go. We like these stories. We, yeah. Send a thief to catch a thief. That's yeah. what I say about my job. Mm-hmm. My father was no different. So, um, yeah, I had a go-kart and I wasn't allowed to race in New Zealand until you were five and we fudged the books and I raced <laughs> when I was four. But I say I raced when I was five but go-karting right through till I was 15 years old. I think the statute of limitations has passed now that you're, you can admit to this one. That's not going to get you in trouble, yeah. just quietly, just quietly. Do you remember your first uh, go-kart? Yeah, I do. Yeah? I do. It was my sister's. Oh, really? Hand-me-down? Yeah, I was um, absolutely hand-me-down. My sister was probably better than I was at that age and I was terrified of it and my father said, look, we'll go to the track, I'll tie a rope on the back of it and I won't let you go. So I'd done about three laps and then I noticed he was very slowly, very slowly, and I noticed my father was standing on the sidelines. I'm like, it seems like the rope may still be hanging from the back, but I realised that I could actually control the thing. Mm. And um, But as I say, I was back then just having a putt round a track. um, Seriously, I've got photos of this shitbox and... I would have been three, three and a half, and as I say, it was my sister's, not mine. <laughs> but your dad had a racing background. I mean, yeah, he did. I've talked to a lot of people about this on the pod, and either people are born into it, their dads, their mums, their families are car people, they race, they tinker, they tune, they're in an automotive, and then you've got people on the other side of the fence who are have nothing to do with it, they found it themselves and it became their thing off their own bat. But for you, you're very much in the... The former group. I think in general, it doesn't matter what sport you look at. If your dad played golf, you go and play golf with your dad. If you played rugby, you played at the local rugby club. Mm. And my dad raced cars and he was pretty successful in New Zealand. Um, but he was more worried about family and business and got out of it. And I think when my sister and I were of an age where we could race go-karts, it was, yeah, well, I'm going to get back into motorsport, but through the kids. Mm, mm. He was a realist. Mm. He, hobby, you know, he wasn't racing with the view that I'm going to be a world champion one day. It was racing no, because but it was in enjoyable saying and a good that, scene. He, he was racing at a level in New Zealand in um, in saloon cars and Jim Richards has always said to me, he goes, mate, you're a bit of a nemesis of mine. He said in the old days your old man in his Mark III Zephyr never worried me but he bought a twin cam escort and he said your old man was – actually quite special so for jim to tell me that who's a mate of mine that's that's cool cool. yeah um he maybe he's just making me feel good i don't know hey but you feel good so that's good yeah and the sad part for me is my mum somewhere we we shifted houses that many times like seriously every year we'd 
move house and she lost all the albums. No. So some people now through social media go, hey, Bet, I found a d- photo of your dad in a Mark III Zephyr. I found him leaning on his twin cam escort at Pukekohe. So now you start to get a bit of stuff back mm. and I haven't had it my whole life. Mm. He just didn't have stuff. Yeah, that's So, cool. uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. As much as I hate social media sometimes. Oh, I was about to say, there's a good thing for social media. Yeah, those sorts of things to connect with people you haven't seen for a long time, those sorts of things is very, very cool. So what about your – I mean, there, there's so much to cover with you and we could go for 58 hours but we won't because – the stuff to do and other things to be to, to be, but where's the racing? Clearly, you know, you start karting so bloody early that you, <laughs> this is what you're going to do. When does it become real? That actually, no, no, I really want to do this. Is it is it when you go car racing or the lead up? No, to cars the karting thing. Still got I so- won I won seven New Zealand karting championships and I was sort of supported to come across to Australia and Asia Pacific and. Um, race for factory teams and when I was when I was at the end of my karting, which is I'm still in juniors, but my father said, I think we can go to the next level and race a car. Well, I, w- I got a Formula Ford at 14. Mm. Well, that was unheard of. No mm. one raced back then. So when I turned up at Pukekohe um, two months later at 15 years old to do the first club race, People sort of looked like, is this really happening? How 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 can this happen? So in some ways I feel like my father pioneered me and and all the 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 following talent. Because even Radisic and that that I've looked up to my whole career, and he's a great mate of mine, used to we used to hate each other, but mm. we ended up absolutely so close as mates. He was 18, 19, 20. Mm. He was cool. Yeah. And Who would do it at 15? You kind of, you know, when I think Kiwis, I think Van Gisbergen's so young. I think Scott Dixon's so young. It's all your fault, basically. Well, it might be. Mm. Or my father's fault. Or your fault. dad's fault, yeah. But it, it did. It really pioneered the way for I, – I, I ended up in the Guinness Book of Records for being the youngest person to race a car in the world. Mm. Just weird stuff. <laughs> I don't know how it came up, but, yeah. So we, we, we pioneered the way for a lot of people. I think we just – we reduced it. There was the old boys club mm. and nothing against that, but the Peter Brock, the Dick Johnson, there was no way a 15-year-old kid should be racing a car. Mm. And New Zealand took it so far, they lowered the age limit of a race licence for certain classes to 12 years old, which I think was totally wrong. Yeah, that's When I was 12 far. years old, I was doing a lot of things I shouldn't have done and you don't think about it and you don't think about consequences. So... Mm. Anyway, that's that was the pioneering mm. feat of my father and I. Mm, love it. Open wheelers are your thing. Yeah. In your racing, Formula Ford, Atlantics, yeah. overseas. Um, everybody who goes anywhere in the sport has someone that helped them out. Someone who was the critical link to introduce you to someone, give you some money, help you out somewhere along the line. Who was helping you in that? That period. What were the critical things that put you on the? Well, I was making that many mistakes and turning Formula Fords into canoes that often. There was a guy called David Oxton, remember him well. And David Oxton was a very, very good. He raced with Brock at Bathurst and bits and pieces. So he sort of sat us down and said, "Hey, we can see the budget's not going to last that long if you keep doing what you're doing." Um, 
you're obviously quite quick in a car. You just got to sort of balance speed to brain power, <laughs> which I felt very difficult at the time. So he was the one that really sat beside me on the grid. You know, my dad, you don't listen to your dad. That's the sad part. And Despite everything that they're saying being right. Being right. If it, it's the same stuff coming out of someone else's mouth, it's different. Correct. Mm-hmm. So I would argue with my father, David Auction would sit there and talk to me through the visor and tell me what to do and I, I would think about it and take it on board. Mm. And that was the big difference. So David Oxen won. Um, look, Kenny Smith and I were absolute rivals. In fact, he threatened to stab me with a screwdriver at one point. What did you do to him? But um, I was the first person to ever put him on his head. Ah, oh, well, that's probably a fair point. But when I was coming through Formula Ford, he was also guiding – maybe not me as a driver so much, but my family and my sponsors of how to maybe take the next level because Formula Atlantic was, yeah, New Zealand Grand Prix. That was the big thing. Mm. And he guided us a lot until I started racing against him and that ended very quickly. Mm. <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> I think like anything, you help people and then when they become a threat, you you, you bail Don't out of the program. Yeah, yeah, funny that. Fair funny enough. That. Yeah, yeah. A lot of our listeners might not be quite across the Atlantic era, but for New Zealand in summer racing, that was the top tier stuff of the early 90s. That was the... Well, that was where Mate, it was I was at. racing Formula One drivers, mm. guys that left there and went back with Marlborough money and raced Formula One and the Jos Verstappens and the Paul Tracys and I'd race against them every year, mm. you know, hand-to-hand combat. There was nothing held back there. Um, so the platform was unbelievable, you know, the Davy Joneses, the Paul Radisiches, the Kenny Smiths, and you can the list goes on, the Teo Farbys, the Keke Rosbergs, Formula Atlantic, they all went to New Zealand because it was the off-season. Mm. So the New Zealand Grand Prix became, or well, the, the whole Tasman series, even though it wasn't really a Tasman series in my era, it was a New Zealand series, um, but all the Americans and Europeans came down to race mm. Just to get miles before they went. Well, the weather was good; they could actually race there. Whereas 100%. where they were from, it wasn't. That and far. we we didn't take up a lot of their time. We did six weekends in a row, mm. and bang, 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 bang. six different Gone. tracks, six weekends in a row, and they were out of there. So we had some of the best in the world come down and race, and you could measure yourself. Mm. But towards the end of that, in, in fairness, you had such a unfair advantage on them. You probably look better than what you were because you can go and race a billy cart in Zimbabwe. The Zimbabwean billy cart champion knows. Is a guru of Zimbabwe billy karting. Correct. Yeah. So we did have an unfair advantage, but, um, yeah, it was a very, very, uh, very special time, the the single seaters and, yeah. Three New Zealand Grand Prix wins? Yeah. Three three, in a row, wasn't it? Early 90s? Yep. Uh, where were they? Were any of them stand out more than the no, other ones? No, look, your first one's always very special. Mm. My first one I ever did, I was the first New Zealander home. I think I finished fourth. Um, I was 18 years old. L- look, and people go, oh, some, you know, you guys had better equipment or whatever. Like, yeah, we had good equipment, but I won it in a Swift Ford. I won it in a Swift Toyota and I won it with Raynard. So... I kind of hold my head high that, yep, my old man put everything into it. We had a great team. We had 
great engines out of America. We've had great support from Toyota New Zealand, but you still got to beat good people. Still got to do it. You still got to mm. beat Paul Radisich. Mm. And no matter what, I've raced all around the world. And if there's a guy that's got balls that will never give up, uh, he may be small, but <laughs> he's he, he's the pit bull that just won't let go. Mm. Mm. Funny how you guys were – you hear this a lot in racing when guys have been rivals and don't get along or perhaps pitted as the rivals, but then later on they get together or that they – I think of the Davo power scenario. The two wills actually were bitter enemies in Formula Ford and they're really good mates now. And you and Rad ended up sharing a car at Bathurst actually, didn't you, with yeah, the, the top HSV dealer team. So it's funny how that stuff and that's how it should plays be. out like later your, on. Your, your, your rival on field. Mm. As your rival, but as you as you mature and you start thinking about it, the respect fact takes over, and that's what I have for him. Mm. That's that's what he is, and no matter where he goes in the world, he has respect. And how he never made Formula One, he was the perfect size, he was the perfect speed, he was the perfect look. He Mm. He was the bloke out of New Zealand that should have made it. Mm. But the the sad part is back when we were racing single-seaters, we, did, we didn't have any support out of New Zealand. Mm. We had nothing. And now the Colin Giltrap has – Colin Giltrap and Kenny Smith have opened so many doors for so many young blokes and young people are accepted. Mm. When Paul was sent over there to look at racing Formula 3, which he was successful in – um, go to America, win in Indy Lights, win in Super V, win in Formula Atlantic. He he should have been our first Scott Dixon mm. or, you know, it's mm. the way it is. Yeah, that's life. That's life. Life changes. Yeah. So the the open wheeler stuff gets you to England. I know you've talked about this a bit before, but it's, a, it's sort of going over a bit of old ground. But talking to so many of the Aussies and Kiwis who went over there in the 80s and the early 90s, Formula 3 was, you know, it's the place to come through, particularly in the UK. So that's where you went and – so that's really what sort of forged yeah, your well, once again, I, your name I, there a bit. Yeah, I had David Oxen, as I mentioned before, who was best mates with Dick Bennett's. Dick Bennett's ran the best Formula 3 team in Europe. West Surrey Racing. West Surrey yep. Racing. So I was offered a test and I, I did a test at Snetterton in, a, in an official F3 test and – I was second quickest for the day. So all of a sudden, alarm bells for them ring. Dix decided, I've got a Kiwi. I was He's living fast. with Dick. Oh, He's fast. Oh, 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 excitement. So I signed a contract with West Surrey Racing. They had a deal with a Japanese driver, with Leighton House, but the second year, Dick could choose a driver. So it was simple. I just continued living over there, living the dream, knowing I was going to race British Formula 3 the next year. And um, living with Dick Bennett and Leighton House in Japan went broke mm. that year. Oh, oh. That was the game changer of my whole racing career. Mm. I think if I'd got to a Formula 3 car with Dick Bennett, I could have had success. I may not have, but that was every opportunity. That was my crack at the big time. If you won races in British Formula 3, you were going to mm. Formula 1. Mm. Um, and it fell apart. Mm. It just fell apart overnight. And Dick even helped me and he was rolt, rolt, rolt all the time with Ron Taranacht. He was the factory team and stuff. He even went out of his way to take me to Adrian Reynard and go, this guy's got a 
this guy's got to go somewhere. So then I got a test contract with Reynard in Formula 3 with Gilles de Ferrin, so we'd test all their cars. And then the Formula Atlantic thing going to America, um, I sort of went off the F3 radar because they wanted me to take a Formula Atlantic car to America and New Zealand and do that stuff. And I kind of, I suppose, yeah, lost opportunity. I got no regrets with mm, it. Mm. But um, if I look at it and go, if there's one turning point that sitting with Dick Bennett's in his lounge suite when he said Leighton House in Japan had gone broke, just deflating, mm. you know, because I'm running around England in a Volkswagen GDI and thinking I'm a superhero <laughs> and ha- having a ball knowing next year is going to be great. But anyway, it happened. Mm, that's life, exactly. The tin top thing is really BMW in New Zealand. That's the So at the time it was interesting thinking back to it where – Touring car racing went back to its own roots in its own countries where we'd all done the Group A thing of the world and isn't it nice that we can all take our car around the world and a lot of the markets, particularly Australia, went, ah, hang on a minute, this isn't kind of our thing. So V8s were born here, which is, you know, supercars now. Yeah. New Zealand catered its category for its market so they became a, you know, the, sadly the Wellington Street Race sort of really stumbled from there and then, you know, they sort of went two litre but not really and then they came up with I think what's called Schedule S, wasn't it? It was kind of a, a New Zealand fit for your market, fit for your budget, Commodores, Falcons, BMWs, a bit of stuff. Yeah, like we couldn't sustain no way. a two Group A car, car or, group a or, or a no. super t- uh, sorry, a supercar or – so they made their own program with Schedule S but the amazing part was all the manufacturers jumped on board. Which always is a good thing in a way, but a bad thing in a way. So we had we had Nissan there, we had Peugeot there, we had BMW there, we had Toyota there. Everyone jumped on board. So we had massive fields. The cars prob- weren't spectacular, but in fairness, the racing was. Mm. And um, when they launched it, I was actually – my dad said to me, look, we're out. As a family, we cannot put anything back in. And it just got to a point where it it didn't make any sense just to completely see the family broke. Mm. And I was sitting um, in in Auckland and I read an article that BMW New Zealand were starting their own team. I had absolute shit, so I threw the magazine. I jumped up and down and my wife at the time, Louise, said, well, I, I just don't understand why you're getting so angry about it. Have you ever, ever picked up the phone? I said, no, the phone should be ringing, you know. <laughs> anyway. And mistake I, one, mistake yeah, one. mistake one, sitting there waiting for the phone to ring and it never rang. So I, I picked up the phone and they go, oh, we never thought, we thought you were just single-seaters. We didn't think you'd ever drive a touring car. So that's kind of when uh, a guy, Mark Gilbert, was 2IC at BMW uh, Jeff Fletcher, who was the boss, and Lyle Williamson, and they had put a team together. And then Lyle just said, mate, if you want to drive the thing, you're in. And my only concern at that time was my teammate because I knew how good Brett Riley was and I thought I might get exposed here because he was <laughs> racing touring cars. He was racing Sierras and Bathurst and doing all sorts of stuff. So then I had a bit of a panic, I had a sweat up. <laughs> but I did. I made the transition okay um, and got an opportunity with BMW New Zealand and they were unbelievable 
unbelievable because they not only did they allow me to race there, they gave me opportunities, um, as you put on Twitter, with um, Bill Bryce uh, to race Bathurst and then open doors overseas. I spent time in South Africa and it was kind of like I was so upset that I'm not racing single-seaters. I didn't really care about a touring car. It was mm. kind of weird, but mm. there was never going to be another opportunity. I didn't think about it at the time, but it, that's the transition and I had a roof on my head. Mm. A drive's a drive, a deal's a deal. Mate, livelihood. Some cash coming in, you get to drive cars. Yeah. It could be a lot worse in yeah. the grand scheme of the world. You mentioned about we ran a little before we were going to come and do this chat with you, we, we asked questions of our of our listeners and our followers on socials and we dug out a photo of that m3 bmw that you drove at your first bathurst in 1990 yep. which was the old um cbm johnny Giacotto car from the world championship from a couple of years earlier you remember your first bathurst how it all came to be oh. and how it all went like a little m3 it was the two 2.3 liter car it wasn't the two just and a, a half liter yeah, car but from- they're just a river and i was so far out of my depth <laughs> i really was you know people you don't get to test and do things and you just arrived at Bathurst and I'd come from all the circuits that, as I said before, you have a, you know, home ground advantage. Then you arrive at Bathurst, you go, oh, my God, this is a totally different kettle of fish and you're in the back blocks really because you've got the Brocks and the Johnsons and the Perkins and everything and the BMW wasn't the quickest car around there. Um Look, some of those guys could drive them around there mega quick, but they were never going to mm. be ahead of the big cars. And in fairness, and I suppose the only way you can sum it up, I shit my pants for the whole weekend. <laughs> I was out of my depth. Um, but it's your first first Bathurst, you tick the box, and it's funny, I, d- I don't even think I really have photographs of that car until I saw the one that you mm. posted. Mm. And so great memories, transition, and you realise how tough and how good people are in their own backyard. Mm. When you go to Bathurst as a rookie in an underpowered car, make sure you put a bigger mirror in the thing. <laughs> I, was, I knew where you were going with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's interesting you say that because I've – just about everybody who's been anybody in the sport says the same thing about their their first time because they weren't at the front of the field. They're in the like Bugs is an example. He debuted the same year you did in a VL Commodore that was already about four years old and needed a cushion to sit up to <laughs> to get up on the wheel and thought he was going good and then Brock Sierra smoked past him and he nearly you, fell over. You it. just How feel like he going. shouldn't be there. Yeah, oh my God, you have that inferiority complex of this is the not- difference is. Nowadays, guys will turn up there and do a lap and, and you'll hear the commentators and you're one. Oh, my God, it's third laps at a certain pace. We walked it once. <laughs> we didn't know what was around the corner. Yeah. The simulation programs now. They've been there a million times been before they've been there. And exactly. they're so good that they actually even work out, you know, the tyre deg and they're, they're, they're within – they're driving their own car almost. Mm. You don't feel it quite through the seat of your pants, but you know where the track goes. I didn't. 
I went out of the pits and I'm going up to the right. Like a lucky dip. What's, Who knows the, what's, next? what's the kink? Is it a corner? Or, oh, no, that's not the corner. The corner's the next one. You know, like. <laughs> oh, hang on, accelerate again. Correct. <laughs> that BMW tie-up for you was really solid there. Um, and you came back to Bathurst with Brett in the Diet Coke cars. You When the two-litre cars had their own class, I think it was the last year that they had a class. That yeah. You guys ran that. I think you finished second or third in the, the class. Yeah. But, um, but then, so the, you were doing the two liter thing was kind of still going in Australia, and New Zealand at the time, and but you sort of ended up sideways in South Africa. So how, how did you end up there as part of the BMW world and not in you know around your sort of home shores? Again, BMW New Zealand and Lyle Williamson were so good to me. They sort of contacted BMW South Africa, and they used to have the international race. So. The international race was basically a two-driver thing. Every touring car driver in the world represented and you went in and, and it was, if you want a tough race, you go to Kyle Army and you race that race. It was kind of the end of the year, wasn't that it? Was so everyone, everyone was available to go. and German touring car drivers, British touring cars. It, okay, I was from New Zealand. But there was people from everywhere hmm. and I went into there and – in those days, my my or my teammate for the first one was Sabine. Um, her surname then was Schmidt. She passed away a mm. couple of years ago with cancer. But um, so I did that race, two driver race, and then I was invited back to do a full championship. So then I had a contract there for three years. So I kind of found my home and I loved South Africa. I really did. I, I met some unbelievably good friends, lifetime friends, and I loved the place. And I would come back here and I, th- I did the Bathurst support race. 96, I remember, yeah. Yep. And I won that. I was qualified on pole, won that. And then I was going to drive here in 97, 97. So I signed a contract with BMW Australia. Frank Gardner was running it and it was quite a hard thing because I had to get out of the contract in South Africa. But this is really the part of the world I wanted to race. This is where Peter Brock and Dick Johnson are and if I could race the two-liter, I might end up in a – I don't even know if they called them a supercar then, but – so, yeah, I signed a contract and came back. So got out of my South African deal and and came back with the vision of racing and a contract that says oh, I was going to race the whole of 97. Mm. And that never happened. Because wasn't it that Lyle took over running the Diet Coke team here in Australia, which Frank Correct. had run for, you know, many moons before that? So. Jeff Brabham and Paul Morris had been driving there for the last couple of years. They drove there in '97, and you were you went into it thinking that you were. Was it supposed to be you and Morris, or three cars, or what was the? No, it was going to be two cars, and I was told Brabham was out of contract, and and in fairness, even to Jeff, he was he was still mega fast, like him and Morris were toe to toe. But I guess they thought, you know, he's getting towards the end. We need to bleed someone in. We'll bleed Beto in and anyway, out of, I think it was like a month before the first race and I'd been testing and stuff and then somehow 
a contract appeared that was still valid <laughs> and I was told that I wasn't to race. But in fairness to BMW and, and, and the Diet Coke team and everything else, they looked after me. They, they paid me for the year. They did, I, I don't know, let's call it a wild card here and there. Oh, you did the last um, two rounds, didn't you, yeah, as a third a couple car? Of rounds yeah. because, you know, obviously Audi and BMW were head-to-head and put me in there. I don't did know what steal I some spoke. points. You were there <laughs> to steal some points. Probably, probably. And, and if you happen to make contact with an Audi along the way, uh, you know, yeah. these and, things happen. Hey, and that never happened, but yeah, I did some races and, again, it put me on a – a platform in this part of the world where I wanted to be. And the biggest thing was I got to race with Paul, um, as in Paul Morris, at the Bathurst 1000. So all these touring car teams are coming from all around the world and these two rednecks, Craig Baird and Paul <laughs> Morris, are going to drive this BMW against the world's best. No matter how that ends, ends up, That's, that story ended in tears. But both Paul, Paul had an A game like I'd never seen that weekend. He was quicker than me in the car, race pace the same, but he was so committed to the program and he was so good at Bathurst, he really was, and he was so good in those cars. And he plonks a thing on pole mm. against and, the menus, the Rydells, all the mm. Audis, the Beelers, everything. Paul goes out there and just drove the wheels off it. Like he probably did a time that was probably nearly a second, which seems ridiculous, quicker than what we thought, mm. what we thought um, he could do. Mm. And he put it on pole. And that was, uh, that was, a, that was a mega effort. And um, I guess the, the, the moral of that whole story is it didn't quite end up it did on the podium. It ended up how we wanted it. Mm. We won it. But there was things went on and things went on behind the scenes that took the trophy off us. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car? best suited to. Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. I want to dig in a little bit more because it's 25 years ago this year. So we were in a really interesting time where we had two Bathursts. There was a, you know, we've seen splits in cricket, rugby league, usually television's involved and it was involved in that one. And I've spoken to some people who it's really interesting. I wanted to hear your take, and clearly we'll, we'll dive a little bit more into the, the what, where, why, and how have happened that day and the, the post race and stuff. But we had two Bathursts. We had the traditional one that we all knew, the date, the Telecaster, but we had all these different cars. Then we had the familiar favourites of the V8s and Brock and Johnson and Larry Perkins and so on. Two weeks later on Channel Ten, uh, where the, that's the people's race, yeah, and the other race was the traditional race in name. But that's kind of bad lit with respect. Yeah. I mean, I count them both as Bathurst 1000s. They're part of the history. Jim Richards is a seven-time winner, not a six-time winner because he won in the Volvo the next year in, in my mind. But we're in this really weird place and I've spoken to some guys and Roland Dane's one of them who that was his first trip to Bathurst. It brought the Vauxhall team out there, Triple Eight, for the first time. The first year that they ran them, he watched Bathurst in the 80s, watched it on the BBC, big deal, big event, our big grand finale. And it was like this watered-down 
version. The crowd wasn't as big. The atmosphere wasn't as big. Do you remember going into it, though, not affected or thinking about any of that? You're in a factory Hi. car for Bathurst, so you're on. This is your Bathurst 1000. Yeah, you always think your own sandpit's the biggest one, but <laughs> reality of it, if, you, if I look back at that, if you don't have Peter Brock, Dick Johnson, Larry Perkins sitting on the grid next to you, it's probably not the Bathurst that we all know. Not the one we all grew up with. Not the one we grew up with, mm. and I watched every one of them. Mm. So I'm not taking away anything from the people that won it and the race and how competitive it was and everything else, but reality is we all in Australia we all know what cars need to be there. We all know what drivers need to be there. Mm. So the European small cars, two-litre cars, British touring cars didn't fit the mould. Mm. Yeah, and they'd been the supporting act for a long time. So to suddenly be the main on-stage performer. It would be like taking a supercar race to a British touring car or a German touring car race or a DTM race. They don't get it. They don't see it. They don't quite understand Mm. it. The players, Mm. the players are the key and not all those players were on the grid. Mm. So... I'm not taking up, man. I'd still love to have that trophy oh, right I was going to say, it doesn't mean that you would go. Oh, I'm yeah. still upset by motor racing so much for taking it off me. I don't have anything in my house that's got motor racing on it. Mm. I don't even have a picture of myself on a wall. I don't have a picture of myself. <laughs> on, oh, no, I have a wedding photo. So that does count, actually. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, as much as we're saying it wasn't, you know, the main course that we were used to, if we put the positive pans on for a moment, Audi backed the crap out of Brad Jones Racing. Frank Beeler came. All these teams, the local teams had all this support. BMW with, you know, manpower, technology. Williams Renault were the British touring car champions, brought their two full-time drivers, brought Alan Jones back, which is a great story, being the world champion for them. Tom Walkinshaw Racing hooked up with the local Volvo Volvo team. Rickard Rydell was part of that. Um, The Peugeot factory team with Radisic and Harvey Mm -hmm. and Watson, Crompton are there. The Vauxhall Triple Eights are there with Brock and Cleland and Warwick. It's a bloody good lineup. It's not a massive field. It wasn't 50 cars. It was 26 or 27 or something. But if you'd won that race or if you'd done well in that race, you had a genuine reason to have done a very good job and be really happy about it because look at the resumes of all those people. That's pretty cool. Like that's They're sort of sadly overlooked in Bathurst history, those two races of the, the two kind of, was, Yeah, it, it's kind of strange though because – the disqualification of it, which is kind of weird because BMW should have really fought for us, Paul and I. Did you feel like you were let down? Oh, we were let down 100%. So had it been any other So car? the rule was very simple. So we should ex- we should explain. Yeah. For those who don't know this. So scenario. I drove for three hours 58 in the last stint. So I did four hours stint to finish the race. Should never have happened. I think we we're just the, the team, whatever, all a little bit concerned could we muck up a driver change? Beardo's in a rhythm. Do we change it? They should have put Paul in the car. Like I was Take the extra I was five rooted seconds. anyway. Yeah. I was rooted at the end of it. I couldn't even walk. Um, do a four-hour stint with no power steering. In those days, That I, I was. They should have just put Paul in the car. We would have won the race. But they had read the rule book and they said, it's very simply, no one driver can drive continuously for more than a period of three and a half hours. 
BMW, whether it be Lyle, whether it be engineers, whether it be mechanics, whether it be mums, dads or whatever, you can't drive a car with no wheels on it. So it was an interpretation, cheeky, mm. but we do this all the time. That's racing. racing. Yeah, yeah. You can't drive a car with no fuel in it in the pits with no wheels on it. So it can't be continuous driving because it's, it's not, not continuous driving. driving. He's had a break. So they sent me back out and – yeah, I got to the end and stuff, but in fairness, when I think about it, I remember hopping out. My my kneecaps were so dry and so hot, I couldn't bend them <laughs> when I went to hop out of the car. I wasn't complete fatigued. It's just the small things you don't think about until everything stops and you mm. go to hop out of the car, you go, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I can't actually do that. So the second car at that point, the Brabham Brabham car finished second and Audi were third. Mm. Brad and Frank Beeler. Yeah. So the problem was BMW backed us for a few hours because the Brabham Brabham car supposedly passed under a yellow. So now we're both under investigation. And the worst thing that could happen here is both is go. that Audi wins, not BMW, Correct. and you both get boned. Correct. So they backed us for a while when the Brabham Brabham car got let off and said they didn't, and to be honest, I can't even remember the ins and outs of it. I think it was on a restart or a safety car or something, and I think they were actually okay. But when they were let off the breach, BMW, and I understand it from a marketing point of view, they didn't want the bad press of Craig Beard's cheated, he's driven for three hours 58, not three and a half hours. So they go, hey, guys, we're just pulling that car. That's We're going to accept that penalty and the next because car Because we know that we've definitely won with the other one. Yeah. So Paul and I had about 3,000 beers out of the trophy at a restaurant and got the phone call that it's over. Paul kind of knew. I think Paul, you know, obviously Paul and Terry were um, a big part of that team. If it was up to Terry, Terry would have fought it. Mm. But I guess they're they're also looking at the longevity with BMW and everything else, and we got flung, mm. lost it. But in saying that, and I've always said this, a door closes, something happens, a neg- negative thing happens in your life, something else pops up, and I was probably more recognised for losing it than winning it internationally. It's funny you say that because it was exactly where my brain was going straight away. So that no matter what the result sheet says, you still drove how you drove that day against the blokes you drove against. So Beeler's hunting you, Brabham's hunting you, you beat them. So people around the world, normally if you did well at Bathurst, it doesn't compare to anything around the world. A supercar... Anus, there's nothing like it anywhere to go. Ah, he, he goes all right. But there's BMWs and Audis racing in super touring all over the world. So as you said before about the New Zealand stuff, you've got a benchmark where yep. the world goes, that bad bloke, ooh, And there was good. one other key component. Murray Walker mm. was commentating. Yeah. Or one of the commentators. So that voice... Craig Beard, Craig Beard, Craig <laughs> it's pretty Beard. pretty cool to have, isn't it? And he, he did it and he kept doing it and it was like, I can't believe he's pulling stereo. away. Because he knows Frank Beeler, but he doesn't know me. And if you're pulling away from Frank Beeler. So when the rest of the world are watching, mm. then all of a sudden, if it's Murray Walker talking, mm. people take note. People listen. This must be something quite special because Murray Walker's there. 
and he's pretty special. And he's not going to do the Zimbabwean Billy Cart Championship. <laughs> what have you got against the Zimbabwean <laughs> no, Billy Cart Championship? Nothing. I want to win it. Yeah. That's probably all I've got it's, left. It's the one trophy left yeah. that you've got to go and try to win. So did you have – you said that Morris had a bit of a clue of where it was like. Were you completely oblivious to it or had you just – I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was because I'm in the car. You're just focusing on going fast. Paul's an intelligent guy and he's the sort of dude that – when I say dude, dude <laughs> he's yeah, yeah. the dude. Um, he would have been thinking, I think we've screwed the pooch. And he would have wanted to finish the race anyway. Mm. And there was no, he was going to start the race. He put the thing on pole. So if I was Paul, I would have been thinking the same. We're, we're playing with fire. I'm as quick as any man, if not quicker, round Bathurst this weekend. Why are we taking a punt? And the communications just weren't open like they are nowadays. And if someone had jumped on the radio, I said, just put Paul on it. Mm. You know, Paul's going to stroke this thing to the end. And I just want to go to the podium. That's all mm. I want. So I, th- and he's, people get Paul wrong, but he's such an intelligent guy. He knows the rule book as well as you and me. The stewards, he would have known that this could backfire. Mm. Let's play it safe. Let's take three more seconds in the pit stop and put me in the car. Mm. That's reality. Yeah. That's what we should have done. And I would have had more memorabilia in here mm. instead of a white wall. White walls are nice, though. <laughs> they're, they're nice. You mentioned before about that more people recognize it because you didn't win. It's a chat I've had with Cito, who you drove with at Bathurst for HRT, and he's kind of put up there as the guy, the best guy not to win Bathurst. There's a couple other guys probably in the mix. Marcus is one of those. But for his longevity of how many times he tried and how close he came and, and that stuff, he, when we did his book a couple of years ago, he said, I, I wonder sometimes if I did win one and got the one I was chasing, would it be as remembered or am I remembered more for not winning it? And, and he's... He's okay with it. Like he, that's life. That's part of his story. But it's a really interesting take that you go. Well, surely being a Bathurst winner somewhere over the journey gets you more memory than not. But then you go, well, actually, sometimes some of the memories you remember in sport are not the games that your team wins than the ones that they might not win. Yeah, I think so we we as racers think Cito deserved to win. He's been so close and mm. stuff, and he should have won. And it's sad we talk about it that he didn't win because he was such a great driver as well. And you want to see that guy just have that trophy. You know, it's very different than me. That was a one-off for me. Um, Cito, that was his life. Mm. That was his team. That was his year, his whole thing. So it's, it's, it's a bit different and it's sad that people talk about people not winning it more than someone that maybe won it once mm. because mm. there are people that have won it nine times. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. But, it, you know, you never know. It is it is what it is. Mm. You get dealt your cards and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. I think of that every day I go to work. Do you know why? No. The suit you wore that day <laughs> is on the <laughs> stairs as I go up into my office. So... A little while, you might remember, your young bloke, Luca, was – I think he was raising money for a jet ski at some he point, was wasn't he? He was trying to buy a jet ski. Um, 
Uh, I might employ him one day because he's clearly got a bit of wheel and dealer in him. That's, mm. I was he impressed has a lot. By that work. He's got a lot of that, okay. Mm. He's selling cars or something. Um, and he was – you had a bunch of your race gear, your suits from various teams and things over the years and I managed to uh, do a little deal to acquire that one. So you are hanging out on the stairs at the V8 Sleuth office in Melbourne with Jamie Winkup and Dario Franchitti. So, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I'll tell you how that actually happened. Luca was talking about um, – wanting to buy a new jet ski, rada rada, and Tony Quinn has my container parked at his factory. So Luca just said to me, he goes, why don't we go grab stuff when I moved off the property? I've got lawnmowers and ride-ons and chainsaws and stuff. Let me sell some of that. Would you, would you help me buy a jet ski? I said, yeah, okay, you sell all the stuff. Then he looked at all the race suits. And he started pulling race suits out and we're talking about, what's this one, Dad? What's this one? I got one, you know, Steve Johnson's, you know. And I started talking, but I'm starting to look at them and I'm going, damn, you know, like that one's got some mould on it or that <laughs> and stuff. So we decided to take them all back, wash them all and everything. He goes, you know what? What are you going to do with them? I said, I'll just put them back in the container. And that's when we thought, you're better off to have a suit like that on Noon's wall because it'll be there and looked after forever than sitting in a container outside getting moldy and yeah who knows what because i probably had 200 of them maybe 300 yeah i'm not joking because every year between new zealand australia and europe Mm. you you do bathurst that's three suits you do bathurst two liter that's two suits you do new zealand touring cars that's two suits you do a single seater race that's two suits they just added up and added up, and I thought, you know, they're all going to rot. Mm. Luca, go sell some. So he took blocks of them and sold them and, yes, bought himself a new jet ski. I was going to say, with the amount that I saw advertised, <laughs> he could have bought three jet skis yeah. just quietly. Yeah, he did. <laughs> so, no, you, you are, you're on the wall with Dario Franchitti's Jim Beam DJR Gold Coast suit and Jamie Winkup's Red Bull um, Air Force, remember the year he ran out of fuel, they ran that special livery. Yeah, yeah. He didn't use that suit in the race. He used his regular suit, but they, they used those ones in practice. They found, I think, that they were slipping in the seat because of the material that they were made of, but it's clearly the um, a memorable wink-up moment. For but if we actually go gym. back to that end of that 97, I was so upset and I'm in a corner, I just feel like the world's ended, and then the phone rings. It's Dick Bennett's. Mm. And Dick's been a mate, you know. He is an absolute mate of mine. We'd have beers every night together. Like he's just an old mate. And he said, "You know how? No, he didn't say let me down, but he said, you know the the disappointment of the Leighton House thing." He goes, "Radisich is going. Radisich is out of the Mondeo. Um, do you want to? Would you would you jump ship from BMW and?" I'm sorry, British touring cars. And at the time, it's mega big, huge. So that's, I guess the moral of the story is the disappointment, how the disappointment triggered something else. Mm. And that's why never nobody should ever get down on shit because something's around the corner and, and you just never wait know. for it. You never know when a factory British touring car championship drive is going to come out of a Bathurst that didn't quite go you. And that's, that's exactly what happened. So Dick rang me and he goes, mate, we're having a test. He goes, you're going to have to bring your A game. We've got Formula One drivers. We've got DTM drivers. We've got, we, we're, we're doing a test. 
You haven't been to the track? Where was it? Um, what was it called? Um, Knock Hill. Mm, Scotland. He goes, you need to bring an A game. I know you can do it. But you're going to have you got another problem though. What? It's a front-wheel drive car. You've never done front-wheel drive, the whole thing. So Because the Bimmer was rear-wheel drive and everything you've driven, rear-wheel drive. Correct. So it was like one of these deals. I get over there and I thought, you know what, I really don't care what's going to happen here. I'm going to get this fucking drive. You can swear. We can swear it's okay. I do not care. I wasn't the quickest in the qualifying runs. But I wanted to put a race program together. So we had different runs. We had two qualifying runs. And I think uh, Jordi Genet, who ended up running F1, um, I think he was the quickest in the quali run, but it was like out of control. Yeah, he jagged a lap. to crash every yeah, time. Mate. Yeah. And then off and bits and pieces. Fast, not fast. Yeah. And I thought, I'm not far off him in the quali. I need to package together, which I've always been quite an intelligent driver since David Oxton. And I packaged together this race run that just smashed everyone out of the water. I didn't want to be quickest on the first three laps. I knew the front tyres were going to go and I just packaged it together. How do I do it? Right, it's going to complete thing. Because you know who's got my back? Dick Bennett's. Mm. He'll go, the green went there and the checker went there and he did it in that time. Mm. Yes, that guy did a quicker time. So that's exactly what happened. And I'm, I, I came back to Australia and a, a week later got a phone call. You're in. You're on. Do you remember where you were when you got the call? To be honest. It's a big call. To be honest, I don't. It's kind of weird, but I actually don't when you narrow it down to that. But the contents of the call are the bit that – that's what matters. Just, that's the bit that matters. I'm going to England. I'm going to race British touring cars. I'm going to get paid in pounds. You probably were going to get paid more than pretty much every other open-wheeler driver in the world bar Formula 1 and IndyCar Correct. to go there at the time. Because Correct. BTCC, 97, 98, they're spending millions of pounds. Th- heaps. Man. They so were, whatever you, if you thought you were on a good wicket, you were only like a tiny little pissy little slice yeah, of I the, quadrupled the my Australian budget but put it in pounds. Ooh, nice. <laughs> Very nice. Those V6 Mondeos sounded ace. That's the only it's thing about they where did. it ended, wasn't it? The, the, the early era ones that Radisic drove, they were pretty competitive, but then they swapped, you know, Rouse lost the deal. Um it went through a few years of shit. Yeah, it was pretty but simple. The The engine was just too heavy. Mm. It had the power, but it was just, it was just too, too heavy yeah. and it's all over the front axle. So now you're asking the front axle to drive you, steer you and carry all the weight. And Can't do it all. The amazing part was Reynard, that was the first – they're a single-seater, man. They were building Indy cars and they'd – they were heading to F1 and they are doing F3000 and F3 and Formula Ford and stuff and they built a touring car. Most magnificent thing you've ever seen in your life. But I just didn't quite understand what that needed. It was so bad when I first drove the new car, we couldn't drive it. Like Will Hoy was good and he, like we just couldn't drive the thing. So I drove the old car at Thruxton for the first round they took it to Germany and put it back in the Ford wind tunnel and go, man, this thing's 
with the weight and the aero it's got at the front, you've got nothing on the back. So you've already homologated your car. And you've got to stick to it. But this is a funny part. They said, Beto, they've found something. I said, what is it? They've found something the mega. Big yeah. They put the rear wiper back on it. I what? am not joking. So we ran all year with a wiper on it. It caused a lot of drag, but it actually changed the aero over the rear screen. A wipe, one wiper? A wiper, <laughs> but it had to be laid square and it upset the air, put a little bit because the rear wing was too small. Everything was about straight line speed and it just didn't work. But um, Raynard's built this beautiful car, but just it was their first attempt. Mm. And who builds a touring car their first time? If you said to Larry, you, you know, and he's a man that builds it with his own hands, mm. the first one you built and the second one you built. Which one's going to be better? You learn a lot of shit. It, it sounds like the Larco of V8s when Larco built that first one. I the remember Falcon, Larco. It was a bit uh, You know how I know wheel. Larco did the open wheel thing? Mm-hmm. I was racing European Formula 3000 in Argentina. I was at Buenos Aires and this – Aussie pauper just rocks up was Mark Larkin because he was trying to buy something to bring back for – so that's the first time I really knew about Larko was I think in 90, 92 or 93 I was racing Buenos Aires. And he was Formula Holden in his Formula Holden. He was trying to cars. find someone that's trying to unload their cars. Mm, mm. That's a very random place to find. Mark Larkham. Yeah. You know. Winners Aries. Australia's own born and bred dinky die. I think he went in. to different pubs than I went to. Yeah. But. <laughs> I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. I guess the other thing for 98 that, you know, okay, the car's not that flash. In fact, it's not that good. You, you need a wiper to help you out, which is not a good sign. But for the championship, it wasn't good for you because I think they benched you a few times. So, but Nigel Mansell, you know, comes and yeah. has a run, which – Huge publicity for the championship. He had a go a few years earlier and rode off one of Rouse's cars under the bridge at Donington. But what I mean, one of those. I think you would be the only person that I can think of who's been teammates with Nigel Mansell and Peter Brock. <laughs> so there you go. There's, there's something interesting. But what, what was he? What did it do to your program? But and B, what was he like? Because Look, to I'd, be fair, as a team, we were completely struggling. Ford needed to save face somehow, somewhere, and do something. And our cars were mega in the wet with all the weight on the front. So if you it nearly rained, won a race, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I, I, well, he did. I did. I, yeah. I led Knock Hill for, I think, probably 95% of the race. Um, and they just said to me, look, Beto, this campaign for all of us is a bit of a failure, but Ford, Nigel's agreed to do a deal. Um, we're going to stand you down. And I did a heap of testing with him and stuff. And I'm not sure that he's just brave or and I would hate to call Nigel Mansell stupid, but he's one or the other. Mm. We The first test we did at um, Pembury, I'm at the back of the pits and he had promised me he could do the back kink flat. And this is in Wales. It's a really little little track. Yeah. Little track. He goes, it's got to be flat. It's got to be flat. He, you know, I'm getting t- – and he hated it with old tyres, but he could drive. He, he, he was just – he had in his mind it was flat. So he decided to do it flat <laughs> and Will Hoyer and I are standing there 
and watch a Mondeo go into two pieces. You were thinking that I haven't seen a good crash for a while. We're about to get that was Nigel Mansell. Hmm. He just had this thing and the self belief, and Brock was no different. I was going to say you've told me this about Brock as well. Yeah, no, no different. If he thought he could do something, you're going to do it. If it didn't come off, it's not possible. No problem. We'll reset. But the only problem was we were running out of chassis because I destroyed two of them. He had destroyed one. So they were now piecing cars back together. Oh, no. It was – he was a fantastic guy. The self-belief, the – the war stories he'd tell you. And I, when I was racing in 92 in America, I was at Phoenix and I said to Nigel, one of the first conversations I had with Nigel, I said, I was working on my former Atlantic car in Phoenix. I was on the infield and I heard this biggest bomb go off I've ever heard. Oh, well, that's when he punched that. He had the huge shunt in the Newman Haas Lola when he first went to IndyCar. Backwards. Correct. Yeah. Backwards. Punched a hole through the wall. <laughs> well, I was racing Atlantic that, that weekend, so... We had some good stories. He was he was a he was a fun guy, but um, the the bravest man I've ever come across. Mm. Mm. It's that inner belief of I've been a world champion. I've won lots of Grand Prix. Yeah, I'm a big deal. I'm a big thing. I know what I'm doing. So if I say that thing's flat, it's going to yeah. be flat. And you and know, it probably was flat until the accident. To correct. be honest, to, to give you it was credit, a flat until he realised it wasn't. He lifted. <laughs> but he he said to me about. Um, his rookie test at Indy, this is where I really knew how brave he was. And he said, I'm doing like 212 mile an hour and I know it's miles off. And I come and I go, no, something's wrong with the car. And I said, well, like, how did you know something was wrong with the car? He goes, it just didn't have the grip and stuff. And they said, well, it, with, the, with the small wings they're running, it's not going to have the grip till you get to 225. 220, 225. You've got to go out and get to 225, then the thing will settle down. So he said, I just went out, bring it to 225, 227. And he goes, oh, all stable. Yeah. Well, that's big balls. Yeah, that's If you think balls. your car isn't good mm. and you don't know that world, which mm. all those guys do, mm. and he can go out and win races over there. Well, there you have it, part one of my catch-up with Craig Baird in Queensland, part two comes up to you next week and we've sort of covered all of the open wheeler super tourist stuff so next week when we drop part two we get very much into v8 supercar mode and porsche carrera cup mode he's got a great story about the greatest carrera cup race of his life and he also opens up a little bit more about his time with peter brock team brock in v8 supercars i went to get into the car to be honest for quality and Bev and Pete said to me, look, Beardo, the crowd are here to see Peter. Pete's going to qualify the car. I said, like, dude, I'm struggling a bit in the thing, but I'm probably 20th. I reckon you're struggling more than I am. Nah, it'll lift. (laughs) It'll raise. They're here for me. Anyway, and I bless them. Um... And it's so sad of what happened. But again, the self-belief, he thought this crowd and everything was lifting to it. All that and plenty more with Berto next week on part two of the podcast. He'll answer your National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions. He tackles the top ten shootout as well. It's a great chat. I hope you really look forward to listening to this one. You hope you enjoyed listening to this first part of the chat. 
And don't forget, every Tuesday, the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast with Andrew Van Leeuwen and Stefan Bartholomeus with the latest news notes and quotes in Australian and world motorsport. Repco Supercars Weekly is back every week, Thursdays or Fridays, depending on the news of the week. And of course, every Wednesdays when you get your fix of the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Part two of Berto is to come next week. If you're listening to this down the track after they're released, go and listen to it now. In the meantime, have a great week. We'll chat to you soon. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, And within seconds, you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.